the advantage of being a small country is that we can introduce new technologies into the system without too much fears of it disturbing the whole entire system. One of the main reasons why a lot of bigger countries have been studying about this but can't do it is because they already have a very efficient system. By introducing something else, trying to be more efficient, you risk of disturbing what you already have. And so countries like Cambodia, as I said, it was inefficient, and therefore this was a good uh, solution to us. Having said that, I think we need to be very specific and very focused on our needs and not try to be too greedy, wanting too much. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. About three years ago, I and a couple of colleagues at the World Economic Forum convened a design workshop in San Francisco for technologists who work within central banks. The goal was to connect them with technologists in the blockchain ecosystem who could demystify cutting-edge technical developments in the space. The workshop was a huge hit and led directly to the creation of a private global learning community. Over the next 18 or so months, the group convened monthly, surfacing questions that we then sourced experts to explain and discuss. Our goals were twofold. First, to connect central bank technologists with each other across disparate economies and geographies. And second, to ensure that they received accurate, non-shilly information about the benefits and risks of blockchain technology. Now, I should note that this work supplemented deep research in digital currencies that many, if not most, central banks were conducting in parallel, whether that was on their own or in small groups. The group eventually asked us to create a toolkit for their policy colleagues to help demystify central bank digital currencies, which are colloquially known as CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies. We released that toolkit in Davos in 2020. Fast forward a year and change to now, the discussion around CBDCs has become almost commonplace. The question now seems to be when, rather than whether, large economies will go public with discussions we know they've been having internally for over three years. In fact, we had an entire episode of this show on China's large-scale DCEP pilot, something that most people have considered unimaginable three years ago. And Chairman Jay Powell of the Federal Reserve has recently said that this year would be a pivotal one for the digital dollar. From the very beginning of our engagement in the CBDC space, it was clear that while experimentation was happening in many places around the world, some of the strongest innovation was occurring in smaller, more agile economies. Cambodia is such a place, and today we'll be talking about its Bakong system. Launched in October 2020, Bakong is a blockchain-based payments and banking platform. It offers a range of services, including the ability to transfer money, make and accept payments, and track transactions. It operates via a network of Bakong banks, which serve as on- and off-ramps to the system. The project has been in the works since 2017. And though it's sometimes referred to as one of the world's first central digital currencies, Cambodia actually views it as a foundational payment system. We'll be speaking today to two individuals who were instrumental in bringing this project to life. First, we're joined by Her Excellency Sari Chea, who is Director General at National Bank of Cambodia. She's a vocal proponent for greater use of the local currency to promote the country's greater independence on economic and monetary policy. She's also a member of the Southeast Asia Advisory Council of Women World Banking, 
and a member of the 2019 class of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders. We'll then bring in Makoto Takamaya, the co-founder and CEO of Sarumitsu, a Japanese fintech company specializing in blockchain technology and digital identity. He's a computer scientist and one of the lead programmers and architects of Hyperledger Iroha, a distributed ledger project. But first, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hello, Sheila. <laughs> so let's chat a little bit about the movement around CBDCs in the past few years, right? Mm. So certainly digital dollar was kind of an anathema concept. There was a lot of resistance to this idea uh, from parts of the government and just focusing here in the United States. But now, you know, it seems that really every economy in the world is talking more publicly about this. Now, as I noted, you know, we know that these economies have been in central banks or even treasury departments have been thinking about this and researching this topic for quite a long time. But now it's kind of okay to, to admit this publicly. And what do you make of that? There really has been, I mean, we've known, as, as you mentioned, that this has been going on for some time. But even when we'd ask people about it, you know, officials, certainly from the press, officials would come back and say, you know, it's experimenting. We don't really know. We're having a look at it. There's a real sense of urgency right now. And I think it's hard to separate that from China's progress. And I think it's a separate question than the ones that we'll be addressing in today's episode. You know, we'll be talking about smaller countries like Cambodia and what they're doing, which I think is a very specific sort of initiative. But where we talk about the Fed and the ECB and these other larger uh, central banks, really sort of it's seemingly accelerating their efforts. I think there's a geopolitical component to it, that there is a, a real concern that central bank digital currencies will end up reshaping the sort of political structure of the global financial system. We saw that China just a week ago, more or less, entered in with the Bank of Thailand, I believe, and the United Arab Emirates to create a sort of interoperable digital currency-based payment, uh, cross-border payment system, which is a direct competitor to SWIFT, the largely kind of US dollar-centric cross-border payment system. That has huge implications for money flows, and ultimately, as, as I've argued repeatedly, for the sort of supremacy of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. So there's a lot of really big issues around that. But I'm really looking forward to diving into you know, what I think got many people interested in digital currencies generally, whether it is you know, crypto like, like Bitcoin, or in this case, you know, central bank digital currencies. And that is, you know, how can this be beneficial to human beings? What are the advantages? And also, what are the risks associated uh, when we take these currencies make them digital and bring them into the retail realm. So I'm looking forward to discussing that with our guests today. Yeah, as am I. You know, it's hard to see, to your point, the work of some of the, the really large economies as, and separate that from the politics of it and kind of the power, you know, the desires to keep or, or grab power. Uh, but some of the smaller economies, I think that you're right, and motivation is different. I mean, there isn't a really uh, a question that some smaller economies are suddenly going to become necessarily the world's re reserve currency. And so the motivation, I guess, interesting to experiment with and, and to, to talk through. I will say, Sheila, though, even though I think quite separate motivations, and we'll hear today from Her Excellency uh, Sarah uh, Chair about this, the role that even for small countries like Cambodia, that these currencies can play in sort of striving for independence. And, and that issue is itself, I think, inseparable from the global financial system. You know, I think that one of the criticisms of the dollar's dominance has been how it leaves small economies holden to, in some respects, the, the whims or, or rather the economic conditions that exist in the United States, right? When the, the Fed goes on a big quantitative easing campaign or in reverse, it starts hiking interest rates, 
this sort of rolls down into these smaller economies uh, as global money flows get dictated by that. And I think that creates huge problems for monetary policy and general policy setting within these developing countries. So it'd be interesting to hear you know, that perspective, which as I say, I think is an element of this big international uh, situation. Yeah, and it's something we've discussed on this show previously is what dollarization can mean for an economy and the positive, but also the negative that can come with that. But let's turn to our guests to learn more about the motivation. Uh, so Your Excellency, I'm very curious to hear about the motivation behind Bakong. And from what I understand, the name itself is a little revealing perhaps. Uh, Bakong was a Cambodian temple, from what I understand, built in the seventh century that then became the basis of design for a monument in Phnom Penh, which commemorated the country's independence from France uh, in 1953. So as you've said in previous talks, Bakong is a symbol of sovereignty and independence. Uh, but I'm curious to hear from you, what was the motivation behind this exploration of the, of the project and then deciding to go forward with it? Uh, well, thank you, Shayla and uh, Michael. The initial motivation came when we realized that we, our payment system landscape was very fragmented. So we've got our banking system uh, providing mobile banking service to its users. And then the banking system people in the urban area. And then we've got the payment service provider uh, or the e-wallet provider, as you know it, who are regulated as payment service, as technology company, basically, at, to a much lesser extent than banks. And their service mainly target people in the rural area. The due diligence or the KYC to open a wallet account is much less than if you were to go and open a saving account. And therefore, it was a very sort of an attractive premises for a lot of users. And so we start seeing the users of the payment service providers completely disconnected from the user from the banking system. And uh, in our missions to promote banking's financial inclusion, the goal is not having people open wallets account. The goal was having people open a bank account, a saving account. And so if we keep these two industry disconnected, eventually we won't have it. People may get confused that wallet is a form of saving, uh, which they are not, and then may probably sort of uh, go away from the banking system altogether. And then what we see the problem here is also that people within the payment system, the the users of the e-wallet providers, they tend to sort of cluster itself Um, So if you are the user of the same service providers, you can transfer money to each other, uh, but you can't transfer to user from a different service provider. So basically, if you use, it's kind of like your cell phone. If you use different service providers, you can't call each other. Um, So it was very fragmented. It was quite messy. And so we thought, how can we bring everyone onto the same page? How can I allow a bank user to send to an e-wallet user? And, and vice versa. And so we were actually exploring different sort of technology to do that. And one that came to us was uh, we could do the same ways as how we did for banking system, which we will bring the bank into the central bank account. So you create a settlement account, everyone become the part of the central clearinghouse. And, and then um, once you're connected to the central bank, uh, then everyone can sort of fit to each other through that centralized system. And the problem as we encounter was that when we regulate the e-wallet provider as technology company, bringing them into a 
a sort of a regulated environment, like being a member of a central clearinghouse, requiring them to manage their liquidity in a way that bank would have to manage their liquidity for payment and settlement purposes, would actually add a burden in terms of regulatory compliance, and the cost will eventually pass on to the users. So we had to find a, a system that allow us to do bring them together, but without adding additional burden. And so, of course, we were exploring different technology and we came across Suramitsu, which proposed uh, sort of the peer-to-peer way of connecting different parties together. So with this, and later Makoto can explain on the technology side. So basically, now what we have is that the payment service provider don't have to open a clearing and settlement account with us. They just need to hold the back of digital money. Once they have this themselves in their sort of e-vault, they can distribute it to their end users and the end users can only transfer when they themselves have money in their wallet. So in a way, it takes away the, the mess of managing the account at the central bank level where you would have to provide liquidity facilities, overdraft facility if they don't have enough to settle the other party. So with the peer-to-peer, we sort of eliminate that uh, intermediations and of course costs as well. It was uh, quite easy to implement. Anyone can come on board through the uh, API. So now we have about 21 members and 26 more uh, coming along. So I want to go back to something you noted about how one of the motivations here was that you had fragmentation in the banking system. And so was it challenging to get the banking sector to come on board? How were they motivated? Was there any resistance from the banking sector? I imagine there might have been some benefit to to an individual bank to have fragmented systems. So how did that work? So, and I think that is the benefit for small country and to start very early on is that if you wait until somebody really grows too big, it will be very difficult to convince this particular users to come and join the others because what is the point of using when you're already, you know, having all these market shares? And so this is probably something to lesson learn from us is that we, we were lucky to start very early. Nobody was actually dominant in the market. And so when we proposed that, everyone was kind of willing to join. I mean, some were resistant, but, uh, you know, with a bit of push and uh, <laughs> uh, everyone eventually joined. We still make it voluntary. It's not compulsory. It's, it's voluntary, but we already have... Uh, 21 on board and 26 more coming. So that's, that's a pretty good deal for them to join, obviously. So uh, listening to this, sorry, I, it makes me think of the kind of interesting way in which money itself has evolved over 500 years, where banks have played this critical role in many respects of creating the money of our time. So I don't need to tell you, of course, central banks you know, issue the currency, but the creation of money in many respects is actually the credit and depositing process of our banking system. Does this change this? Where do you define the difference between what central bankers call M0, which is, you know, local currency and say, you know, M1 and M2, the banking-based system of money? I'm just trying to see if we can break that down so we can get an understanding of what we're talking about here. So initially, there was a confusion that what we were issuing is a central bank digital currency. I'm sure there are a lot of technical elements that make it similar to a central bank digital currency. But from a policy perspective, uh, it is not. So the question as to what is the role of money, what we're doing is pretty much like any other wallet that you're using right now, where you exchange fiat money against the digital version of it. So we're not creating new money. We're we're not gaining any seniorage from it. 
that's the, the difference between what we're trying to do at the CBDC as well. In terms of its impact on the monetary policy, again, we're not adding any new money. So this is basically for us, it's equal to M0. So it, it's equivalent to cash. One, it is in the wallet of the end users. It's what we be considered as cash in terms of accounting treatment. As far as the central bank is concerned, this is cash as well. The way we treat it in our accounting is pretty much like the cash issuance that the, the central bank would normally issue. Okay. That sounds to me like it is a central bank digital currency, but it's, I suppose, the way it's connected to the banking system, which separates that. There's so many different models out there. How does that distinguish, other than the fact that it's one that is mandated and coordinated by the central bank and therefore has an official role in it, how does this differentiate from, say, what exists now in the United States with things like Venmo and PayPal, you know, even in China, you know, WePay and the others, which reside on top of the banking system and allow, you know, that payment, peer-to-peer payment system on top of it. What, what would you say is the distinguishing feature of what you've built versus those systems? Again, I think it would have to go back to the accounting treatment. I mean, from the technology perspective, once you hold that money in your wallet, it should belong to you because there's no replication of it, right? That's from a technology perspective. From the legal and accounting perspective, we can differentiate that. So the way we treat it is that, let's say, because the distribution is not directly from the central bank to the end user, the distribution is from the central bank to the financial institutions that we regulate. So we only issue it to the financial institutions or the e-wallet providers, and then they has the responsibility to distribute it to their users. And so when it go to their users at the central bank level, we wouldn't know who are holding what. All we know is that this money belongs to these banks. That's all we know. The other characteristic of our Bakong is that when you normally hold cash as a CBDC, it belongs to you. Let's say the banks go bankrupt. The money should belong to you. So the provisional administrator, for instance, can't go and take that money away from you, correct? Because it's like cash, it's already in your pocket, right? They're not going to ask it back from you. The way we treat the Bakong is that we treat it like the e-money. So meaning it is in your pocket, but if that particular bank goes under bankruptcy and the provisional administrator come to us and say, look, we need to take hold of whatever asset the bank has, we will give them the balance that they have at the central bank as the total asset of the bank. In that account or that balance that they have with central bank would also include money that people would hold into their pockets. So the moment the provisional administrator, for instance, sees, freeze all the account, I, as the end user, won't be able to transact anymore. So that's the differentiation. I think the main differentiation with the CBDC or the digital cash that you would normally hold. It's very interesting. It's actually using the banks, I would say, as a distribution mechanism. Putting them between you and the people is an interesting way as well to remove that surveillance and address some of those privacy concerns, which we can talk to a little later, but I think Sheila, you wanted to bring Makoto in at this stage. Yeah, I would love to follow up on some of these because there's technical design elements to this, right? That are really critical. And so I, I would love to hear about some of the technical design choices. Makoto, you're toasted on Hyperledger Aroha, of course. Maybe we just start with the use of blockchain in Project Mekong. Like what, how are you using a blockchain and maybe what consensus approach or just give us some kind of overview of, of the blockchain aspects of this. And then we can move into, I think, some of the really interesting questions about 
privacy and surveillance opportunities and things like this. But maybe we'll start there. Okay. Yeah. So blockchain, I think, is a natural fit for this type of system that unifies many different actors. So you're trying to unify payment space between end users and payment service providers and banks. And blockchain provides kind of like a digital scarcity, right? So if you have these digital assets, it's like a bearer asset, similar to cash in, in many ways. Of course, there's different accounting nuances uh, with this uh, system in particular. So it seemed really natural to use blockchain for this because you needed a way to confirm digital scarcity among all these different actors. And then you have uh, fungibility within the system, uh, so long as users are uh, allowed to transact the digital tokens that are being used. Another aspect that came into mind was the need for multiple currency support. So many settlement systems only uh, use one currency as a main currency. But in Bakong, we need to support not only the local currency, the Khmer Real, uh, but also the US dollar because of high dollarization. Having a blockchain where you can easily create many different assets gives you lots of flexibility. In the future, this could even be extended you know, to other types of financial instruments. It doesn't have to be only uh, currencies, for instance. So that was part of the thought that went into it. Also, from a security standpoint, we wanted something where you know, if there's a central database that would be hacked, that would be really bad. And so using blockchain that has consensus where each end user is signing the transaction and there's cryptographic proof of the transaction being, you know, officially signed, it's really, really hard to do some kind of bad activity in the system. So it's not like a central database exists that you can just change some account balances. Instead, you'd have to go into everyone's phone in the system, which is quite a difficult thing to do if there's millions of users, right? It kind of changes the risk profile from being really centralized area of attack to having, you know, really uh, diffuse uh, risk profile. So that was part of the, uh, the reasoning that uh, went into using blockchain. I probably don't need to tell so much the Coindesk audience, but Bitcoin and other open blockchains and public uh, cryptocurrencies are very slow and they use lots of, you know, electricity for mining and things like that. That, of course, was not something that would work in a central bank payment system. So instead, uh, what was needed was a you know, secure system that the central bank could run and that didn't use mining and was really fast and had uh, not just probabilistic finality, but absolute finality. And so that's why we provided Hyperledger Iroha, which uses uh, supermajority voting among the different peers in the system to finalize transactions. And this happens uh, in a very quick way because the system is you know, the infrastructure is very centralized, even though the, I would say the business logic is very decentralized uh, because all the transactions are being signed at the end user devices. What this gives us is the ability to, to create and confirm transactions within three to five seconds very consistently. And I think this can get better in the future as technology evolves. But this is already fast enough for retail payments compared to physical cash that you would hand somebody at a store. It's much faster, right? You don't have to deal with change and all these different things. So there's many advantages of using a system like this and using blockchain in particular. So maybe if you can, Mikhail, to go into a little bit of the structure and the intent that you talked about, almost immediate finality and that, that of course, a critical concern when you've got banks involved. Is that achieved simply by the fact that it is a permission system and that doesn't have all of that sort of com computational overload that a permissionless system has? Or are there other bells and whistles in there that make the system more efficient? And I'd just be interested to know whether if there is a move towards more permissionless systems elsewhere in the world, right? all the developments that I'm sure you're aware are happening yeah. around Bitcoin and everything else with lightning and things like that. 
you know, whether there is any capacity for this to sort of migrate under that sort of system, whether there be any benefits for having a more open system. I would say there's, well, there's two technological benefits to having a permission system. Uh, one is it gives you some clear uh, assumptions that you can make about the computing hardware and the capacity of the system. And this, you know, is very important when having a systemically important infrastructure. Additionally, uh, by permissioning it, you do get some greater security because you know exactly who the actors are who are running the nodes and, and where the nodes are. You don't have to have the computational challenge that Bitcoin has with uh, something like proof of work mining or even proof of stake because you don't need this competition because uh, all the entities are permissioned. And so this, it, it makes a lot of sense in a system like this. Technology changes a lot, right? And so even public blockchains are getting much uh, faster and so an example would be something like Polkadot, where within 20 seconds now you can get finality through what's called grandpa consensus. It's an interesting space to look at, and it's going to get only better over time. There's disadvantages to using a public infrastructure, especially without you know, encrypted or private transactions, because there is some possible sur surveillance uh, that could be done. Even with pseudo-anonymous accounts, you could uh, de-anonymize uh, the accounts using different graph uh, theoretic techniques. And so it doesn't really work, I think, for a large scale uh, central bank payment system, maybe for like, you know, really small countries like uh, uh, different island nations who don't really have money for large amounts of infrastructure, uh, using a public blockchain could make sense. In Cambodia, I mean, it's, it's small compared to, you know, China or something, but it is still a pretty fairly large country. There's almost 18 million people. And Having a system that's kind of dedicated to the payment needs of, uh, of this specific populace, I think, makes a lot of sense. And this goes back to something I think that we push on a lot here on this show, which is, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve and what are you designing for, right? And so it is a very different proposition to be designing for a very, very tiny nation that is pretty uh, independent or that is fully dollarized, for example, versus one that has use of different kinds of currencies and has a different uh, problem space. Uh, and so I'm curious, you know, one thing that comes up a lot, though, pretty consistently across all these different use cases is the concept of programmability. And so having a payment system that allows for programmability. And I'm curious to hear if that was a high priority in this particular project and, and how you designed for uh, enhanced programmability using, using the system. Well, I'm sure Her Excellency has some thoughts on this as well. But uh, at least from my perspective as a technologist, Having too much programmability actually is a bad thing because it uh, increases the possible attack vectors. But uh, that being said, the forward extensibility of a system like this is really nice because you do have a very specific protocol that you can use to transact within the system. And you already have distributed consensus that manages the digital scarcity of the assets involved. And so it makes it really extensible into the future. So if you wanted to have gee, something like a wholesale security settlement, uh, that's fairly straightforward to do compared with building a system from scratch, right? You could even have uh, different conditional logic. So for example, something like a financial instrument, like a bond, some kind of yield bear bearing instrument where uh, the yield could, could be automatically paid upon uh, maturity. So things like this, I think, uh, can simplify a lot of the processes. I think it'll take some time to kind of move things into that direction just because it's better to be conservative with systems like this and not try to do everything at once because that could possibly you know, open up uh, new areas of attack, which would not be good. 
So it should take some time, but the forward extensibility of uh, using a blockchain system, it makes things very interesting. We haven't yet talked about things like monetary policy, but I think uh, doing like graph theoretic uh, analysis of a transaction graph on a blockchain also makes a lot of sense. So there's many advantages to using a system like this that could be extended forward um, into other financial instruments besides just some kind of digital currency or payment system. Take that now, if we don't mind, to the the central bank. So, Saray, tell us, do you have longer-term plans here, or are you purely thinking about this as something that deals with payment issues? What other use cases, whether it is the integration of programmable money into supply chains, or it is monetary policy metrics, do you see coming from this? I think the beauty of the advantage of being a small country is that we can introduce new uh, technologies into the system without too much fears of it disturbing the whole entire system. And I think one of the main reasons why a lot of bigger countries have been studying about this but can't do it is because they already have a very efficient system. And so by introducing something else, trying to be more efficient, you risk of disturbing what you already have. And so countries like Cambodia, as I said, it was inefficient. And therefore, this was a good uh, solution to us. Having said that, I think we need to be very specific and very focused on our needs and not try to be too greedy into wanting too much. So yes, there are possibilities that we could extend this to a wholesale. There are possibilities that we can uh, look into more sort of use case of, of this technology. But I think at the moment, we're just trying to uh, make it work with whatever initially intended, which is a backbone payment system and trying to connect everyone on the same page. And in fact, even in our toolkit that we published, we noted that in, in highly efficient systems, the ROI of rolling out something like this is probably quite low. And so that isn't really a problem space that we had recommended or anticipated that a lot of uh, highly efficient systems would be focusing on. And, and I, I think that's exactly right. There's a, a clear benefit on that particular axis. But I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, which is this concept of financial inclusion. You'd mentioned that one of the goals is to create more savings account opportunities and things like this. How are you measuring inclusion and, and have you been able to measure growth and inclusion since you introduced the system? Although I know it hasn't been that long. How are you planning to, to monitor or, or evaluate that kind of metric? So in terms of trying to make money digital, I mean, Michael have mentioned about it. I mean, the main reason of doing it is for transactional purposes. You want to make transaction more efficient. There are three main definitions of money, which is a, a unit of account, a means of saving and a means of payment. These are the main three functions of money. And so I think the, the main sort of benefit of turning it into digital is for transactions. And so when we work into trying to bring people into the financial, formal financial system, realize that to bring them in into having a saving account is the best uh, solution. But saving means that they need to have first money to save. They need to comply with a lot of KYC and the level of requirement keep increasing every month. And also in terms of credit. So the three financial services, the main four main financial instrument, one is saving, credit, payment, and insurance. So saving and credit are already quite difficult uh, to, to bring them in. So they need to have money to save for saving and they need to have a credit, which they may not necessarily need it. So you don't want to push credit onto people. Uh, but payment uh, is something that happened to every walk of life and it happened on a daily basis. So if 
at the initial stage, if you can bring everyone into the digital payment system, it would create some sort of history of that particular person. So you, you may not have a credit history, but everyone has a payment history. And so if you can sort of capture those information through this digital platform, you create a payment history where you allow banks to better know their customer and therefore eventually build into sort of a credit profile of that particular customer. And so that's why we're focusing on the payment sort of directions to it as well work to, to promote, you know, access to credit, access to saving account. But payments, we realize that it's, it's probably something that we should focus on. In addition to that, and, and you were asking about measurement, access to payment is, or digital payment is not the end itself, it's the mean to the end. Eventually, what we want them is that for them to open a proper saving account um, and not an e-wallet account. So since the introductions of Baco, it's very early to, to say what are the progress, but we've seen now that there are more and more cross-institution transactions happening from banks to the e-wallet user, which is a very good indication that we have reached our purpose. So far, if we count all the users of member banks uh, indirectly using Backgong, we have about 5.6 million users. Those who download Backgong on using the wallet of Backgong itself, we have about 60,000. So that's a pretty good number uh, given the, the timelines that we've introduced this and also given the uh, low digital literacy. Again, I mean, there's a lot of assumptions that we, uh, we need to take into account. When we introduce this, we make assumptions that everyone is going to have access to a smartphone. Uh, because obviously you need to download an application on a smartphone, uh, which is not really a case in a lot of developing countries. Cambodia in particular, using your smartphone is not as widely used as this, um, although the use of mobile phone is quite widespread. We also make assumptions that people understand how to use this digital technology. There's a lot of assumptions that we are making. We are not saying that Backgong is going to solve it's a big bang solutions and everything will be resolve with the introductions of, uh, of it. So I want to spotlight something you said, which is this notion that a payments history can provide the kind of information about an individual that can lead to them being considered a worthy credit risk. Uh, and that is something I think in the United States, you know, there's a history here of redlining, as we call it, where, you know, you, you can't get access to a loan or a mortgage or whatever it might be because you don't have a sufficient credit history. And the, the concept of switching over to looking at payment history as an initial step along the path to being you know, credit worthy, I think is so powerful and so important. Because to your point, if we're serious about financial inclusion, we have to meet people where they currently are. We can't anticipate or expect a timeline on which they're suddenly going to be, have a different model of how they're engaging the financial system and prevent them from any sort of access because we are awaiting some sort of threshold indicator that they are in fact credit worthy. And I think that focusing on payments is just, it's just a really powerful concept that I wanted to flag for our listeners. It's really interesting to hear how that orientation has affected the design and the rollout of the Backkong system. Yeah, I actually think that reinventing the paradigm on that is, is actually one of the most powerful things that can happen here, mm -hmm. right? It's think that if we build everything around a credit system, you know, those tropes become the framing for everything. And that becomes a massive barrier if, if you can't get across that border. And yet there is all these alternative ways now to prove, you know, your participation in the economy. 
However, Sarah, you were mentioning a couple of things there that immediately got my ears up a little bit because on this program, we talk a lot about the challenges of things like KYC, this idea of the digital divide. And so there's two things that you came up there. I think I'd like you to maybe drill down into a bit further. And that is like, how does this in any way lighten the KYC load? What can you do with this technology and this structure? Because I imagine there's got to be some identification process in this. How are you lightening IDs and how are you ensuring that that in itself doesn't then create these other concerns we have around privacy? It's the first question. And then the second question is, I think it's great that you're up front, you know, we're assuming this is only for smartphone users at this point. And that's, you know, just, you're not trying to sort of basically get this out into everybody's hands. However, you'd be well aware, of course, that that means there is a digital divide. Uh, What efforts are there or will there be underway to expand access to smartphones amongst the poor who don't have access to them at this point? In terms of KYC, I would probably sort of, just for understanding's sake, there's two layers to KYC. One is to understand, to know who the person you are dealing with is. And so basically, if this person claimed to be a Cambodian or an American, I mean, is this person really from that country? If I claim that I'm born of, you know, on this date, am I that? Am I a citizen of a particular country that I claim I am? So to do that, the only authority that can verify, I don't know what is the case in the US, but in Cambodia would probably be the Ministry of Interior, where they would do all the birth certificates and, and issue your passport and everything, do your marriage certificate, etc. So currently what we are doing At the moment, the Ministry of Interior have a portal where soon uh, through a couple of uh, sort of channel, we would be able to, Bacon would be able to directly connect to their central database. So whenever somebody come and register for Bacon, we would be able to immediately check it against the central database and then know exactly who this person is, right? So that's the first layer. The second layer of KYC would be fraud detection and AML, etc. So you would trace my payment behavior, whether it's unusual, whether I'm paying somebody that uh, is suspicious. So the banks themselves would have to do this. When somebody onboard KYC, the central bank will not do the KYC on that individual. We will pass it on to the individual banks, to member banks to do that. So basically, when you download Baco, what the first things that the customer need to do is to choose which bank they want to bank with or which e-money provider they want to have a relationship with. And when they click into that, they are required to provide some identifications. And that identification, it will fall onto the banks or the financial institutions uh, to verify and make sure that they are in order. That's the, the KYC that I was talking about. That's really just an extension of the existing system where banks play this kind of important gatekeeping role as the keepers of the record, if you like. Yes. You were mentioning about privacy, et cetera. So the central bank don't hold this account and we don't take the responsibility on us to do the KYC. We'll pass it on to banks and they would do it. We won't know who is who. We probably have the serial number of the coins, right? Makoto. We'll probably have the serial number, but we wouldn't know who hold those. Um, so this belongs really to the banks and the banks would then, you, they know who is transacting, who is sending money to whom, and they already know this without that goal. 
In terms of access to smartphone, it's very difficult. I mean, the only things that we can do as regulator is we can't distribute smartphone to people, obviously. But the only thing we can do is to provide financial literacy and digital literacy to the people. So financial literacy is something that we do already on our part of our mission. So recently, we have embedded digital literacy into that mission as well. So we have campaign. Uh, we go from town to town and we speak to anyone who's willing to come and listen, uh, mainly the uh, local authorities, the local NGOs, and explain to them so that they will go on and explain to the people in, in the village um, about financing, whether they should take a credit, whether they should open a bank account, how they do that, and what are the questions they should ask. Uh, we also add on elements of digital knowledge. So meaning if you have a smartphone and you want to transfer money now, you don't need to go to the bank branch to do this. What you can do is you can download the application and do that. Simultaneously with Backcom, we also launch another system called Retail Pay, something that we have been working in cooperation with the KFTC from Korea, which is one of the biggest payment system provider. And this system provides access, allow payment transfer using USSD technology. So if you don't have a smartphone and you have a feature phone, you can still send money to each other through those technology. However, this system is only limited for banks to banks account. Um, it didn't include the e-wallet providers. Did you say USDC then? Uh, USSD, uh, which is something that used on smartphone, you know, the old Nokia phone that we have. Yeah, it's SMS format. Yeah. So. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Makoto, maybe you could jump in here, going from this very local kind of retail push out into the villagers effort that Sarah was talking about and going to the other extreme. And that is like building this out to the kind of international world. My question is therefore about interoperability. In a future world, is there a way to take this technology, that the base blockchain that you're using and interoperate that with other countries, central bank digital currency systems? I mean, the Bank of Thailand, you know, right next door to Cambodia is developing its own CBDC. It is, I think, now working on, on an Ethereum uh, model, you know, with consensus. Previously, I think it was an R3 system they were looking at. But as I mentioned at the beginning, they've just entered into this agreement with China and the UAE on a cross-border system. So they're thinking about interoperability right there. How does something that's built on a very different system, like the Bakong system, interoperate with these others? Or is that even something that we should be thinking about at this stage? Well, I think it is a priority for NBCs. In the past, uh, they've signed an MOU with the Bank of Thailand to do uh, QR code standardization, which is one important step towards you know, payments integration across border. Also, there's an MOU, I think, with Maybank in Malaysia for cross-border payments using uh, Backcom. So these are publicly announced. I don't know if uh, Her Excellency wants to talk about these uh, some more, but yeah, generally, the simple answer is uh, there's many potentialities for cross-border payments. So the digital you know, money here, it's kind of like a bearer asset. So whoever has the keys is able to transact. And so what this means is that domestic banks in Cambodia can make agreements with foreign banks, and then they can exchange uh, some funds where the foreign bank gets some of the backcom tokens, and then they can uh, do currency exchange, for example, in Thailand or in Malaysia or Singapore or wherever. It doesn't really matter, I think. Uh, from a technical standpoint, this is uh, very possible. But maybe uh, Her Excellency has some, uh, some more details. I, I think from a technology perspective, it's, it's no issue. I think we can always 
find way to do that. I mean, what is difficult is probably the policy decision. Do you want to do that? And what, what are the issues? Something that we've been exploring with a commercial bank in Malaysia is that th this has come about from something that is very personal to me. And this is trying to figure out, because Cambodia sent a lot of migrant workers to Malaysia, and mostly are women, so as uh, domestic workers. And so what I wanted to do was, how can we help these women remit money back home easily? So a lot of the times, you know, when people remit money home, they would remit it to a member of the family and the member of the family sometimes may misuse that money. And that happened to the, the mother of my adopted son. And then she became very mental because the money that she sent home uh, weren't used uh, for the purpose that it was supposed to. And when she fell sick and she went back home, the family had nothing and they went back into poverty. So a lot of her working time wasted. And so what I wanted to do and an experiment with Malaysia was that how can we help the women migrant workers access to Bakong and then send money back home to the school, to the hospital, to the utility company directly anytime, any day, free of charge, because it's supposed to be peer-to-peer, -peer, right? And so we were exploring with this commercial bank, see whether they can be our agent, meaning if the migrant worker receives their salaries in ringgit um, and they want to put money into their bakong wallet, how would they do that? Whether the bank would be willing to exchange their ringgit into US dollars or into our local currency and then send it into the uh, worker's wallet account so that this worker can remit money back home easily. And so as we were exploring all this, so that's, that was, an, I, to me, it was a great idea. It, it, it was easy, right? And so when, as we were exploring through all this, I mean, we came to a very big stumble block, which is the KYC. Because whenever you send money cross-border, what you need to know is who is the receiving end. And if you were to allow this peer-to-peer -peer and, and so straight through without going through any intermediaries, country like Malaysia would not be able to know, you know where the money, who, who is benefiting the money. Uh, from Cambodia, we probably know because you know, the person who holding the backong, we have all the information. But country like Malaysia, they won't be able to. So they will have to work with their regulator how to overcome that. The other issue also is that if you have some measures on your capital control, and I'm not saying that Malaysia has, but if a country were to have all kind of this measure in place, then it would be very difficult to control that. It's so quickly move across the border. That's the point that I mentioned, that it's come down to the policy and not so much about the technology. You know, I think it's so incredibly powerful to hear that story and to hear what you had in mind as you were imagining this system. And you can see like how different that orientation is from thinking about how do we make interbank settlement payments more marginally faster, right? Like the orientation to those problem spaces is so profoundly different. And you know what I would say, and something we talk about on this show a lot is how is this technology benefiting actual people? And I think you're giving an example of how this kind of use of a blockchain and kind of the creation of this new network of Bakong connected institutions can really support actual people, like people who are, are struggling with real problems. Um, and so in any build of any project, you know, there are moments where uh, it all just seems futile, horrible, incredibly challenging, you know, just impossible. And I'm very curious if there were moments along the way where there were just 
what was the hardest thing? What was the hardest thing about this entire process? Was it convincing banks to join? Was it the decision around technical design? Was it uh, getting people to you know, initially use it? Like, I'm just really curious what you found, the, maybe a stumbling block where you questioned, like, is this actually going to happen? I'm curious to hear from both of you what, what such moments might have been. For me personally, I am not a technologist. I can barely handle Microsoft Office. The, the challenge was trying to understand what it is, but I think the biggest, biggest challenge is to convince our own management to go ahead with this project. Um, there's obviously a generational gap between our boss and the team who are working on the project. Remember, I think I said this before, the first time we went to our management and we explained about you know, blockchain and the first questions that our governor asked was, what is blockchain? And then I, who don't know nothing about the technology, started with, it was created by this anonymous guy in Japan. <laughs> and, uh, and then he looked at me and, and I know immediately I gave the wrong answer. <laughs> anyway, that's, again, it kept them very skeptical about what going after that. And so when we said nobody has done it before, we are the first one who's going to test it. Of course, we had to convince the management that the risks were calculated and that we've discussed with the industry and that willing to go on board with us and that everyone is, is on the same page. And that was probably the most challenging. And I, I can understand, you know, when you come up with new technology like this and uh, get a certain, I would say, senior people to understand it's, it's very difficult. I can certainly, I can certainly respect that. <laughs> um, Makoto, were there technical issues along the way or challenges that seemed really hard to surmount? Well, building technology, you know, it always takes a lot of work. There's no way around it. You just have to put in long hours and, you know, work hard. And uh, yeah, it took a couple of years, I guess, the development uh, to get the initial system ready for the pilot. There, there's no like single technical difficulty that was overcome. It's really, you know, everything had to be planned. And I think the biggest problem was not so much technical as it was harmonizing the potential of the technology with the regulations. So the banking supervision side and what the rules are for onboarding users and what kind of currencies can be supported, what the daily limits are uh, for transacting, what's the KYC process. All these questions took a long time uh, to answer. That's just because banking is, is really complex and uh, it's getting more and more complex. There's always new rules. A lot of the people in the regulatory side were a bit conservative about a system like this because it is kind of new. It makes a lot of sense that people would be a little bit wary about allowing users to do too many things. That being said, I think all the risks uh, that were taken on the regulatory side and technical side were really, you know, very moderate and very you know, conservative. And so, for example, like uh, related to AML risk, uh, that was a big discussion that was going on for a while. You, you'd have to be pretty crazy to do any kind of financial crime in a system like this because you have a permanent record of transactions, right? Even if it's pseudo-anonymous from the central bank standpoint, you know, somebody knows the identity. And even if you faked your identity or did something really bad, you know, like selling your account or something, the transaction history is permanent. And so different types of analyses can be done later on to de-anonymize if needed. Obviously, that's a very, you know, touchy regulatory subject, but I think regulators don't have to be as conservative about the system as they would be about something like cash, which is you know, much harder to trace especially for cross-border payments, a system like this can give a lot of certainties to foreign banks because uh, you can do a measure of traceability once the transaction is complete, which you don't have with cash, right? I wouldn't say there was any like, really major challenge. I mean, building systems is hard. It's hard work. I had to stay up many sleepless nights, travel the world many times. But I mean, it's, it's like a normal type of thing when, when building any type of software. 
a lot of times in software, every time you build something, it's something new, right? It's not like building a bridge or building a house. Uh, software is really complex. It's the most complex artifice that uh, humans create, right? So it, it just, yeah, it just takes lots of hard work and good processes, which fortunately uh, we were able to, to build and NBC and all the commercial banks were very, very helpful in you know, testing the system and giving feedback and having that kind of support, especially from the top management. I don't know where a system would have been without uh, support from higher ups in NBC because it you know, takes a lot of political clout to, to push a system like this through. Just one last question here for you, Sarah, just to bring it back, if we can, to you know, the people on the ground. We talked about the outreach that you've done to uh, communities around Cambodia. Can you just give us a sense of what, in general, the public response has been? Are people excited, interested? Are they fearful, right? There's often a concern when new technology comes along here in the United States, we get plenty of conspiracy theories about all sorts of things, whether it's vaccines or you know, digital tech. Are you encountering a generally positive response or, or is there skepticism? This is another benefit of small countries that people don't really care whether it's blockchain or else. What they care is that can I transfer money from this bank to the other bank uh, smoothly and cheaply and, you know, and with immediate effect. I don't have to wait the next day. And so people were actually, I, we've got very positive feedback on the system. And I, I don't think they realize this is blockchain. I don't think they realize, you know, that people are actually looking at us and see, you know, how it is going. I, I don't think they really care about this. But generally, yeah, the adoptions has been quite great. I couldn't think of a better place to close. I, I think that, you know, as, as I often say, we'll know that blockchain's really arrived when no one's really talking about it anymore. You know, and again, the average person doesn't need to ever understand how blockchain works, they need to know what it enables. And in this case, I want to commend both of you for the magnitude of this project. I mean, it's just an absolutely incredible undertaking and being so early uh, in the process uh, to be, have the conviction to go forward with this uh, and with the orientation in mind of really thinking about ultimately how you can create a more inclusive economy and how you can propel and accelerate the economy of Cambodia, I think is just extraordinarily powerful orientation to this project and one that is sadly unusual. So congratulations on this massive achievement. It's really exciting to see uh, how this technology can create a better world and, and how you're already doing that. So thank you so much to our guests, Her Excellency Sarichea and Makoto Takamaya. And as always, uh, my co-host, Michael Casey. Uh, and that's a wrap. We'll see you all in next week's episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Her Excellency Sari Shea, and Makoto Takamaya. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musel, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast.coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. And stay tuned for next week's episode, when we'll be back with our third installment in our NFT collectible series. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks again for listening.